welcome to the NATO Deep Dive Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sajan Gauhel, and in this episode, I speak with Dr. Todd Helmus, a senior behavioral scientist with RAND. In our discussion, we talk about the importance of controlling the narrative during conflicts, as well as the growing concerns about how artificial intelligence is being used for disinformation, propaganda, and deepfakes, as well as the role of state actors. Todd Helmus, warm welcome to NATO Deep Dive. Well, thank you for having me. Let's look at the situation in Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine has had success in the information battlefield. Uh, Russia, which was once considered to be the preeminent force when it came to propaganda disinformation, has found itself being directly challenged. What are the reasons underlying Ukraine's success uh, in terms of leveraging online influences? Uh, well, um, thanks for that question. I, I just put a piece together on War on the Rocks on that topic. Um, uh, I really find the most interesting piece about what's happening in Ukraine is the degree to which uh, Ukraine is leveraging just regular people. I'm not even sure if they're purposely le- leveraging this or not, but regular folks uh, in the army and out of the army are taking to social media to share their experiences and it just so happens that these experiences really work in Ukraine's favor. They're highlighting, uh, talking about the uh, attacks that you that Russia is is launching against civilian centers. There's a great influencer named Margot uh, Guntar who is a journalist, but she basically live tweets uh, air raid siren alerts uh, in Kiev, and you really get a, a sort of a palpable feel of what's happening there just by following her on her feed. Um, and there are a lot of other civilians out there uh, 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 sharing their viewpoints, similar viewpoints to that, but also other perspectives. And then, of course, we can't you can't help but think about all the all the coverage that's happening out of Ukraine on the uh, successful attacks that they're conducting against Russian forces. Um, you almost get a skewed view of how successful Ukraine is getting just by following social media and seeing the degree to which. Uh, Ukraine is targeting successfully targeting uh, Russian tanks, successfully targeting Russian troops in Bakhmut um, and other places. Um, and some of that, of course, is done by the Ukraine government. But a lot of it is also coming from soldiers who have their own Twitter accounts. We follow Twitter here. I'm sure in the region they do. Um, they have other channels that they're following as well. Um, but you really get sort of, again, a palpable feel of what's happening there because uh, uh, you have folks like uh, Viking. There's a really interesting Instagram account named Viking is a Ukrainian pilot uh, who, you know, uh, you get a sense when he's going on his missions um, and what it's like for him to fly his attack uh, chopper uh, into combat. And there's others as well, like Craig Forsher is a Ukrainian Marine. He's got like nearly 70,000 followers. I think he's a, uh, on TikTok. Um but, you know, he's posting a lot of live feeds on attacks against Russian forces. And I, I feel like there's several really key benefits to this. One is there's a lot of research showing that, you know, people have inherent trust to what they call someone just like me. Uh, a number of surveys have shown that people trust someone just like me more than governments, um, uh, corporations, uh, and things like that. So we have a lot of trust in in those who we can relate to. Um, and that's really the value of of these individual accounts. They're, they appear by all purposes to be normal folks in really tough situations. 
Um, and by following them, we build a relationship to who they are. Um, and uh, and that I think that relationship that you get through following someone on social media, um, uh, you know, makes their message really particularly powerful. That's very interesting. What lessons can NATO member nations learn from the experience of the Ukrainian army when it comes to the utilization of social media and influencing operations? Well, I um, I can't speak to NATO in general. I know here in the United States, um, there's just a feel there's a lot of angst um, in the U.S. military about soldiers going out on and on social media. And soldiers do go out on social media. The military doesn't prevent them from doing that. Um, so they're still doing it. But there's a lot of angst about it, a lot of angst about what they're tweeting and concerns that that that, uh, that they might say or do something negative. Um, and the real emphasis is on the fear. I think of what uh, uh, the higher authorities feel about these individual soldiers who have grown up on social media and are just really used to and accustomed to sharing their views, perspectives in a very visceral way with their audiences. So you can be scared of it and you can try and tamp it down or you could just leverage it. Um, you know, it's certainly I think what Ukraine is doing um, uh as I write about, there is a very strong case for, at least in the U.S., I'm sure in Europe, businesses leveraging their own employee base. And there's a lot of benefits to leveraging your own employee base uh, to get out on social media. They, they, because they work for you, there's a, some semblance, some level of, of trust and um, motivation to say good things. Um, because they work for you, you can you have a touch point with them. You can provide training um, uh, and education to help them. Uh, not only be better at social media, but also know what the lines are, right? What what are the things you should or should not talk about? Um, and and then of course you can follow follow these individuals um, uh, and evaluate what types of impacts they have. So the businesses do this. Um, uh, a number of Fortune 500 businesses are engaged in what what are called employee advocate programs, and I just see a lot of unique comparisons between that and what Ukraine is doing. Um, and what I argue is that the U.S. military should develop some sort of employee advocate program. You know, just you can start small or big, but you basically identify savvy social media uh, folks within within the military, and then you provide them some training and oversight on what they're doing. Number one, you empower them, say that you're really excited about their skills and their capabilities, and you want to see them share their perspective of being in the military. You can provide training that can help improve their capabilities. Um, and of course, as I mentioned, you can provide some education about things not to tweet about, right? Don't tweet about how you hate your commander. Don't share sensitive information. Um, uh, and I, especially here in the United States, we're really struggling to recruit new people into the military. There is a very significant deficit um, of folks coming into the military. Um, and, you know, I just, th there's a lot of potential power in soldiers, uh, Marines, airmen, and Navy folk, uh, getting out on social media and talking to their own networks about their experiences, which oftentimes are really exciting. Uh, these, a lot of the, I mean, some of the, there's a lot of doldrums in the military, but there's also a lot of exciting moments that are highly shareable content that could provide highly shareable content. And if they could share that um, and the military could welcome that, then I really think that we could do a lot to uh, 
uh, spread the message about what military life is like within the U.S., uh, particularly within the age range of the folks that they want to recruit. And I think that could be very powerful. You used the word um, leverage a, a couple of times. I feel you've almost um, answered what I wanted to ask you next, but just wanted to see if there's a way to expand um, this very uh, important discussion that we're having and that the military might also think about what a social media presence looks like during uh, military contingencies. Are you able to expand on what that actually uh, would entail? Yeah, I think I think so. There's 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 two levels to approach this. One is the soldiers. What the and I'll just use the word soldiers, referencing all service personnel. Um, but there's one aspect of of how you leverage your service personnel in this, and then there's a second aspect of how you leverage other influencers um, in the battle space. Um, first, on the soldiers on the on the service personnel side, um, number one, I should say you don't want everybody out there going into battle. Um, uh, live tweeting and you know being concerned about their likes uh, and engagement data uh, while they're in the midst of a firefight. Obviously, you don't want that. You obviously don't want them giving away their positions. And so, um, uh, uh, and so there's obvious. So there's you know there's going to have to be rules in the road, and it would probably definitely have to be more strictly regulated than what might be the case in garrison. Um, but uh, but I could imagine providing a, sort of a commander's intent to your employee advocates who, by the way, have been trained um, and educated um, and have some level of requisite trust in what they are able to do. Um, but providing some commander's intent about the types of content that are permissible, not permissible, um, uh, ensuring that there's strict rules about not giving away positions and things like that. Um, but then letting them share their experiences. And uh, this will obviously vary according to the types of operations, right? You don't want uh, a, a high-level special operations unit doing this in the midst of a highly intense operation. But there, are, I'm sure there are other scenarios where, depend again, depending on the operation, you can see soldiers sharing information about humanitarian operations um, that they're doing. Um, or sharing information about uh, enemy attacks that they've successfully engaged in. Um, so all that would be very powerful. And, and if you think about the, what is otherwise the case, particularly in the U.S., is that you would have combat cameramen who go out and they're in select units. Um, uh, and they often take very, I don't know, in my view, they take very sort of posed pictures um, they don't come across as authentic uh, as what might be the case if someone snaps something on their smartphone. So I think that's really powerful. And obviously, to make that work, you need doctrine um, to set the stage about what that would look like for different types of operations. And you need to integrate that into training. So when you when a unit does their 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 there are high-level sort of uh, inter-unit training events, then you would want to make sure that there are individuals in that who are authorized to, to post and share content to some sort of made-up social media account. And then they would do that as part of the operation, and the public affairs folks would help do the after-action on that to see if that worked or not. So that's one piece. The second piece is that there are influencers out in the battlefield that are not Americans. Um, uh, I go back to thinking about Iraq or Afghanistan, maybe not in Afghanistan because social media presence wasn't so good. But imagine going back to a place like Iraq. Um, uh, and, you know, in this day and age where everyone has a cell phone and, and a social media account, um, identify those people that are 
support your cause. Um, these are, are folks who uh, live in the country, who have a level of credibility with their compatriots. Um, and uh, so you want to identify folks that are sort of sympathetic to, to what you're trying to accomplish. And then again, you go through this process of building a relationship with them, training them and educating them uh, to be more influential, to use their capabilities even better. Um, and uh, 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 and then provide them, you know, you're not going to tell them what to do because you really want this to be authentic, but you could empower them to go out and share these stories. And the U.S. does this on some level. We evaluated a, a program, for example, in the Philippines and Nigeria, for that matter, where the U.S. where um, some folks from the State Department helped train uh, local uh, civil society people to be better communicators. Um, and then, you know, with that training, they just went out and did a lot of interesting things. Uh, we weren't able to evaluate how effective that was, but, you know, these people were really excited to go out and, and do the things they were doing. These are folks that lived in uh, Mindanao, Philippines, and they really disliked the whole terrorism problem that was happening there. They wanted to be a part of the solution, and the U.S. sort of provided a means for them to participate in that. You've provided a lot of important perspective to do with uh, influence operations, with shaping the narrative, getting the information out there. One thing that we've also noticed in this current age has been the rise in uh, technology, and in particular, uh, deep fake threats uh, as part of artificial intelligence and uh, forming uh, disinformation campaigns. Can you provide an overview of the deep fake threat and the technology that is being used uh, for, for as associated with artificial intelligence driven technologies and also its contribution to disinformation campaigns. Well, yeah, I mean this this space is blowing up right now, um, as you're well aware. Um, and, I'll, and I'll just note there's four different types of sort of technologies that are at play here, and they're at different levels of of maturity. Um, first, we know that there's ChatGPT, um, uh, which allows you with a simple um, uh, text command to create relatively believable text. Uh, um, and it is very conceivable that adversaries will use programs like ChatGPT to power their social media campaigns. Um, places like China, where uh, uh, they might lack a lot of English language expertise, or, we, or at least where that could be a limitation in their ability to peddle uh, propaganda content to the U.S., now really have an automated means of creating that content in a way that is, you know, does not sound like it came from uh, a second, uh, 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 someone from China. Sounds like someone from the United States. Uh, the second part is there's um, there's these um, uh, text to um, text generated images that are online right now, and so you can create an image with basically with any almost any type of text command will generate images, and a number of those might well be in the wheelhouse of what you're looking for. Uh, this just happened yesterday. We're sort of dealing with this in the U.S. right now, where. Um, uh, with all the frenzy about whether or not President Trump will get indicted in New York City, um, uh, someone disseminated a, uh, a series of uh, deep fake images showing President Trump being arrested. Um, uh, those images went like wildfire um, across the social media space. 
Um, and my guess is almost uh, anybody who's really interested in running a disinformation campaign or or conveying any sort of real message on social media, it would probably behoove them to go to one of these uh, generating generator websites and generate images that can back up whatever claims they have. Um, that technology is good to go right now. So there's there's that's a very high level of maturity. Um, the pictures look believable. Um, and so I imagine that we're going to see that explode in, in the next, I don't know, maybe the next few weeks to months. Um, there's another value to it, too, that it can power the images you put on your on your social media profile. So before you had to uh, use someone else's photograph um, on the on the fake social media accounts that you'd create, um, and those could oftentimes be uh, uh, a reverse imaged back to the original owner, which would show that it was a fake account. But now it's really easy just to create a fake profile image. Um, the third piece is so the third. Um, so the text message, the third piece would be the uh, uh, deepfake videos. Now, the deepfake videos are, um, there's several ways you can create those. You can do face transplants. So you have an actor um, or some sort of video footage, and you can transplant a face of whoever you wanted to deepfake onto that. Um, and uh, uh, so that is one way to do it. That technology is not fully there yet. It takes several months of work, at least two months of hard work to create those videos in ways that they'll be highly believable. Um, there's also another approach that you can use completely synthetic approach. China uh, was just recently caught um, with a YouTube campaign uh, featuring synthetically generated images that they use to create the, their anchor man as part of these fake news programs that they had. Um, that was generated from a program called Synthasia. Um, Thensasia.com, you can, uh, and they basically uh, uh, pedal software that allows companies to uh, basically create training videos from scratch. You don't need an actor. You just need to um, go to Synthasia.com and they'll create an avatar on any language um, with any sort of background that you choose. Um, so that is, those images look pretty fake right now, um, but they are being powered by not only China, but Venezuela is using them. Uh, to, dis to 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 disseminate some of their content. Um, right now, the big value is that it's just cheaper to do that than having an actor do it. But that technology will get better and that you will easily be able to fake um, uh, uh, key personalities uh, that you might choose. So those are just a few of the uh, sort of the technologies that are out there um, to this end. Uh, like I said, I think the text generation, the image generation is there, uh, good enough to be used right now. Um, I think it's just a matter of time before adversaries um, really start to use these technologies in a coordinated, systematic way uh, to, co to uh, conduct their campaigns. You've laid out a lot of examples of how this technology can be utilized and manipulated. And I have to say, it's very disconcerting as to just how sophisticated it's become with each example being more disturbing than uh, the next. Um, Todd, what clues are there that people can look for uh, that would give away uh, that a video or a piece of tech is is fake? Uh, 
will this uh, eventually become irrelevant because the technology then is so good that it's impossible to tell? Or are there small examples, forensic uh, tools available that would be able to discern between what is genuine and what is fake? I think with the with the high end deep fake, deep fake videos, the face transplants that take several months to put together, um, my guess is those can be done and it'd be very hard to discern from the just the naked eye that it was fake or not. The synthetically generated content videos right now, it's pretty easy to discern. They just don't look real. The head movements don't look real. The the, the conversational tone doesn't sound real. Um, but that's really only if you're trying to pay attention. It's, I imagine there's a lot of people that don't pay attention um to those cues and they might be fooled um but it looks but it looks kind of fake um uh the text i think that the the text especially the text that you could put into a, a a social media feed um you know my guess is a lot of people will get fooled by that and the image generations would people would definitely get fooled by it i'd say the exception is the, the funny image showing president trump uh running away from police officers uh, that that image uh, had him running a little too fast for a seventy-some-year-old man, but um, other than that, the, the 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 images are pretty good. Now there are texts, there are uh, technological ways to discern whether something is fake or not. Um, I don't know. I really can't speak to the the high-end um, technology of that, um, uh, but um, you know it, it involves. Part of the way that you create sort of, for example, deep fake content is you think about having two competing computers, or they called GANs in this case. Um, these two computers, one computer is charged with uh, creating uh, uh, a deep fake content, and the other is charged with de detecting that deep fake content. And so these work in consort um, to develop these highly believable images because as the first iteration is created, then the other computer identifies what aspects of that uh, look fake or need to be improved. Um, and then the first computer goes ahead and makes those improvements. So there's detection oftentimes is really built into the creation of a lot of this content. Um, and that makes it, I think, particularly challenging to create effective detectors right now. Facebook, a couple of years ago, did a competition to um, identify the um, and basically asked a lot of organizations to create detectors. Um, and then they tested the effectiveness of those detectors. The best detectors, as of a couple of years ago, only detected about 65% of the fake video content. Um, uh, my, and, you know, I've heard that uh, the advances in creating content have probably outmoded advances in detecting content. So you might not even be that successful now. Um, and as the videos get created even better and better and look more perfect and have higher resolutions, um, the likelihood of effective detection will get uh, lower and lower. And once you and once you use a detector, then um, uh, that detector is kind of outed. And then those who are creating the video content can create videos that uh, that detector can't detect. And a classic example of this is like in 2019, it was discovered that deepfake videos uh, uh, the um, actors, the videos were not eye-blinking at believable levels. Uh, they weren't eye-blinking at all. Um, within about 30 days, that fix was made, and then all the deep fakes started eye-blinking uh, in a relatively believable way. So the um, uh, the 
it's it's sort of a the battlefield is definitely in favor, I think, of creating the content more so than detecting the content. Let me ask you this. We have seen over the last few years concerns that hostile state actors have interfered in elections uh, around the world. Is it only a matter of time before certain states use deepfake material to derail uh, particular politicians or political parties when it comes to uh, election campaigns? So I, my answer to that is depends. Um, uh, and here I discriminate between foreign actors and domestic actors. Here in the United States, it's a highly partisan world we live in here. Um, it is, I almost guaranteed certainty that um, domestic actors will use deep fake content to attack um, political actors. Um, uh, so that that will almost certainly happen. I think the question is whether do foreign actors do this? And my guess, it depends. The, what it depends on is a couple things. Depends on what they're trying to target. Like, think about the worst case scenario where Russia launches a deep fake targeted, a highly believable deep fake targeted at President Biden as uh, two days before his uh, uh, re-election, his, before, the, before the 2024 election. And that deep fake is so believable that it throws everybody off. And then all of a sudden uh, he loses support. And now you have whoever is competing against him, maybe Trump or somebody else, win the election. Um, my guess is that's definitely a worst case scenario. Um, of a foreign actor upending a U.S. election. Um, but my, I also imagine that that would incur some level of cost for that foreign actor. My guess is whoever created the video will get outed, um, uh, and, um, uh, and then there will be some sort of political diplomatic price to be paid for doing so. I think the U.S. could help shape the choices that adversaries make in the future, by highlighting the different types of consequences that they may face by conducting such campaigns. And as we argue in our report, we need a war game. We need to really war game out um, uh, the factors that different adversaries would consider in creating this type of content um, and war game out uh, the different types of deterrent strategies that could be put in place to prevent them from doing so. This whole thing, seems uh, nightmarish uh, to some extent because it's almost living in a sci-fi world uh, where uh, it's all it's effectively some of the movies that we have seen that have gained prominence uh, in in our lives are uh, are actually now it's becoming part of our our real world uh, is there no way to regulate this or is this like the internet that it becomes basically a, um, a a space uh, which is ungoverned uh, and where material will continue to expand and proliferate. Yeah, um, I, I definitely agree. It's going to be a bit of a surreal world we're going to be wading into um, in the near term um, as this type of technology proliferates. Um, uh, I, I really believe that any any decent uh, disinformant is would be well advised to create some sort of at least deep fake images that would go along with what they're doing. So I really imagine we're going to see a really strong proliferation of that. Um, uh, 
I guess the question is, is there a regulation that can stop it? I don't, I mean, here in the United States, um, uh, there is, it might be depend on the different sort of regulatory environments in different countries here in the United States, uh, where uh, there is freedom of speech, uh, which is constitutionally guaranteed, um, might make it different, difficult for U.S. government laws and regulations to prevent um, uh, people creating this content because it will be seen as an extension of free speech. Um, there are a couple state laws on the books on this, um, uh, but really I don't think those laws have been put to use yet. And they certainly, whether or not they withstand constitutional scrutiny, I think is a is a major question. And I, I would probably not bet on it. Um, so uh, can the tech industry regulate itself? Um that's a good question. I I don't, you know, I feel like the cat is out of the bag right now. Um, this technology is out there. Um, you just need uh, some decent engineering experience um, to uh, put together some of this technology uh, with um, with some of the um, uh, code that's available uh, right now. Um, and it will get easier and easier to create over time. Um I think there might be value in regulation from the big actors like OpenAI, Google, and Meta. They're all creating, um, you know, there's there's certainly a sort of war going on about their ability to create text generation capabilities and certainly um, text to video and text to image create uh, capabilities. Um, uh, hopefully they will engage in, in some level of self-regulation, um, either as a consortium or on their own. Um, think about just how the platforms have their own safety, um, uh, their own departments that focus on trust and safety. So I would hope that those organizations would focus trust and safety initiatives on their deep on their artificial intelligence capabilities. Um, but that's not going to prevent a lot of other actors um, who don't care about this, who don't care about trust and safety or who want to leverage it to their own capability from developing that capability. I feel the cat's out of the bag a little bit. The cat's out of the bag, indeed. Um, a final uh, question, uh, Todd, is that where do you see the other concerns when it comes to technology? Um, we've touched upon uh, influencing campaigns. We've looked a lot at AI and deep fake. Is there another dimension when it comes to technology that uh, we should also be paying attention to uh, from a concern perspective? Um, well, I mean, so maybe the other angle on this would be the ability of foreign actors to leverage artificial intelligence to sort of, uh, engage in some kind of command and control of their own information operations. Um, uh, you can, so you, there's the technology that exists to create the discrete content, the videos, the images, the text. Um, but I feel like the, the big concern will be when actors learn to put all that together and develop a, a technology that can synchronize that so that you could have basically autonomous propaganda campaigns running online, um, which would uh, which could be conducted at scale. Right. You don't need to have like X number of people managing Y number of social media accounts. You just need one computer to manage all your social media accounts. And so you can just keep having more social media accounts. Um, I think that is that is uh, I, you know, I feel that's sort of the uh, I don't think we're there yet for that. 
Um, uh, it's hard enough for humans to command and control even a small number of accounts without getting detected. Um, uh, but uh, but I think the capability will be there that they will be able to do some of this autonomously. Well, I think this is all going to be very important for a lot of the decision makers around the world as to how to handle, because it's very clear that this is uh, something that is morphing, developing, uh, being utilized uh, a lot for nefarious purposes. And it's something that is going to require very urgent uh, addressing in the near term. Um, Todd um, Helmus, let me thank you once again for joining us on NATO Deep Dive. You've provided us with a lot of important perspective and food for thought. Well, thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed this conversation. It's been our pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of NATO Deep Dive, brought to you by NATO's Defense Education Enhancement Program. My producers are Marcus Andreopoulos and Victoria Jones. For additional content, including full transcripts of each episode, please visit deepportal.hq.nato.int forward slash deep dive. Please note that the views, information, or opinions expressed in the NATO Deep Dive series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of NATO or DEEP.